Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and a parent of two young adults, one of which is diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Ilya? Thanks for having me. Thank you. So today we're here with Kelly Challen from Neuropsychology and Education Services for Children and Adolescents, or as I more familiar <laughs> is NESCA. Um, and, you know, Kelly is the director of Transition Services, uh, and she offers a ton of educational workshops and webinars around transition and, of course, does her own um, evaluations and consultations around transition. And so, um, as I usually do, I really like my guests to introduce themselves. So, Kelly, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are and on the organization you work with? Sure. Thanks, Ilya. Um, So, as you said, I'm the director of Transition Services, which means that I oversee all things transition related, but I'm also the assistant director of the practice at NASCA. So, I um, take on some administrative responsibilities, too. Um, So NESC is a group practice, um, and we actually have offices in Newton, Massachusetts, and Plainville, Massachusetts, and also in Londonderry, New Hampshire. Um, And we do a fair amount of international work in terms of seeing uh, clients overseas and having clients come into the States to work with us. Um, So we specialize in assessment, uh, treatment, consultation services for children, adolescents, and young adults with special needs, um, whether they're mild or complex. And our clinical staff um, is is really diverse. So we have neuropsychologists, transition specialists, um, occupational therapists, therapists, and psychoeducational counselors, and other treatment providers and consultants. Um, and the interesting thing about NASCA is it was uh, founded as a neuropsychology practice in 2007, um, but we've had transition services and transition specialists on staff since 2009. So really the whole way that we work with the students who come to NASCA is really thinking about you know, planning for the future. Um, you know, providing testing now that's going to support a family and a team around a, a student in terms of creating a roadmap um, for helping a child long term. Um, in terms of my background, um, I have a, a long history working with students on the autism spectrum. So I started um, my career um, working with students with autism and especially Asperger profiles in 2004. Um, I worked at some of the most well-known summer camp programs in Massachusetts at that time. So I spent my early career at MGH Aspire and I um, worked in developing their first teen programs and the framework for some of their young adult programs. And from there, I went to the Spotlight program at the Northeast Arc, um, which was an improv-based social skills program for students um, and sort of a broader range of students taking part in the services. And then now um, I actually just celebrated my seventh anniversary at NASCA as a transition specialist. Yeah, so, um, and as you said, you know, I do transition assessments is certainly a big piece of what I do, you know, evaluating um, 
all sorts of things, students' strengths and preferences and interests and then sort of needs as far as developing skills for the future. I do a lot of consultation with families um, and with schools and offer um, college planning support. You can imagine uh, this time of year, especially with COVID, um, I have a number of students that I'm offering uh, college counseling support to and then uh, working directly with teens on their own like career planning for the future and transition planning for adulthood. Um, and then I have the uh, privilege of overseeing a couple of other transition specialists um, and occupational therapists um, who are all working with really students anywhere between 12 and 25. So wow. <laughs> when they're That's not students range. anymore, right? That, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, at any point, somebody might be planning for a future. Right. And so that's right. a lot of what we focus on. Yeah. And I really know having worked with you directly, I know that um, I love your approach being so realistic. And I get the sense the practice in general is just really hands on, very realistic um, and approachable and understandable. Um, and, you know, as we keep moving through this conversation, I think people will get that. But um, let's just step back and talk about well, what the heck is transition planning, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, we use these terms often and, you know, in our world, this is like normal conversation. It's part of our normal glossary. But for other people who might be new to special education or new to a diagnosis for their child um, or new a, a new educator, um, you know, we might hear it, but sometimes we don't always know <laughs> really what that is, right? And then I, I used to teach something like transition with a big T and transition with a little T. Um, and the transition with a big T is more of what you focus on, um, like what happens as we move through to, you know, the future. So can you give us a little background on what transition planning is? Yeah, so, I mean, transition Planning and transition services, um, you know, where that concept comes from for if we think about students 14 to 22, um, it actually comes from the federal law. And it's actually it's in, you know, in the law that basically created, um, you know, free and appropriate public education for students with special needs. It says right there that the goal of the special education services that students receive is really for them to you know, be moving toward employment, be moving toward independent living, be moving toward um, post-secondary education, if that's something that that student is interested in. And so, um, you know, the whole goal of special education is adult outcomes for students. And that's where this idea of transition planning and transition services comes in, because often students on an IEP who have special education services, when they're younger, a lot of their services might be oriented towards just helping them make progress with academics year to year. Um, students with autism, we may also pay attention to some of their social skills or organizational skills as well. But when we think about transition planning and transition transition services, there are so many more um, areas that we might consider and focus on if we're preparing a student to, I don't know, be an airline pilot, or if we're preparing a student to be ready to attend college away from home. Um, and so this idea of transition services is what are the other skills and activities and, you know, community resources that we need to connect students with so that they can really make progress towards a successful and satisfying adulthood, you know, based on their goals for themselves. Um, and certainly because self-awareness can be challenging, it's, you know, it's their goals for themselves, but also, you know, goals that are 
um, goals that are thought about by other people, you know, who know the student well too, right? There might be times that that parents help um, students to think about some of the things that they know the student really likes or doesn't like or wants in their future. Um, so it, the problem with transition is it, it's incredibly broad, right? It's incredibly broad and it's incredibly individualized, um, but it is also a legal right for any student on an IEP. And then at NASCA, um, we really think about you know, transition planning, not just in terms of the legal processes and the IEP services, but, you know, we work with students who aren't on IEPs. We work with families before they're, you know, before they're teenage. It's just more thinking about this process of becoming a more, a more independent and more self-sufficient adult, although all of us as adults are, <laughs> you know, sort of interdependent, right? You, know, you can't actually get through life um, without needing other people or needing help from other people. And so it's also being able to learn about, you know, resources that adults use and, and um, feeling comfortable reaching out for help when you need it. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a topic that's so near and dear to my heart. And again, I think it's it was as my own children were, you know, they're young adults now. But as they were moving to that process, it's like, wow, yeah, we really need to think about prepping post high school really early. I know we have, you know, this, you know, in Massachusetts, 14 starting this transition plan or, you know, federally uh, 16. But what. Um, what really strikes me is that it really kind of starts even earlier than that, right? Like it's before we have this formal process that has to take place if a student is on an IEP. Uh, I think, like you said, you work with students that are not on IEPs. <laughs> and I think this is such an important uh, process to go through and think about with young people, you know, as they're in that middle school, moving into high school phase, uh, because it's everything, right? Like, it's why we're doing what we do as educators in the classroom. It's why we're, you know, making sure little kids take turns in line and why we make sure that they learn different organizational strategies, like all of that stuff. There's a purpose and it's not just to get classwork done, right? Right. Yeah, um, it's funny because I just think about, um, I mean, it's hard not to think about the pandemic right now because we're living it, um, but it's been such an interesting opportunity to focus on developing skills for adulthood that maybe haven't been as easy to develop when students are in school six and a half hours a day or six hours a day. Um, I think about like, I have young children at home and we have learned to do a lot more chores than my kids ever did. You know, as a parent, one of the things that's always hard is having enough time, <laughs> right? <laughs> having enough time right. to allow young people to help with different things. But, <laughs> you know, the kids have learned to unload the dishwasher the kids have learned to load the laundry you know sort of load the washer and dryer it just like whatever is developmentally appropriate um, for middle school students right now uh, this remote learning has provided some interesting opportunities to work on executive functioning skills that students may not have had the chance to work on until college. You know, all of a sudden they have a schedule that may have, you know, classes 
at two or three different times in the day with gaps in between, you know, there's sort of independent work um, that could be plugged in. And so um, some students have really benefited because they have an opportunity to apply executive functioning skills um, that when your whole day is structured, you maybe haven't had that same opportunity. So it's interesting to think, um, you know, the benefit of time and a little bit of the benefit of less structure <laughs> um, <laughs> has created some opportunities um, to, to really focus on certain transition skills. I know there's certainly, you know, other stressors involved, <laughs> um, but but it's interesting because I, I think uh, there's a lot of transition-related kinds of skills um, that are a little bit easier to work on right now, um, and, and that's a nice thing. Yeah, because we've been pulled out of our usual routine of, you know, what... Uh, I don't know. I'm thinking the routine of get your kids up, get them ready, right? Like hurry up yeah. because we have to get <laughs> on the bus or we have to drive you to wherever, you know, your caretaker is and then get to my own work. And it's this very structured, um, right, day after day thing. And now it's like, oh, everything is sort of open and everyone has to work and we have to work around each other. And how do we manage all of that? Um, and yeah, definitely with online learning, it's, uh, hadn't thought of it that way, creating this sort of prepping <laughs> for what might be post, post school. So that, um, that's really interesting. Um, so, you know, as we're looking at transition, I was talking about looking at that from an, a really younger perspective. Um, so if we're looking at that 12 to 25 range, right? When you're 12, what are you looking at as far as um, assessment for post high school? Well, it's interesting with, um, and I'm actually coming up on, uh, I'm going to be, you know, evaluating some middle school students soon. So I'm thinking about my process with that. But um, with younger students, there's there's certainly a need to get a like some baseline information about what we call life skills or adaptive skills, um, and that's a lot of you know skills for for self care, right? Like your hygiene routine, um, your your teeth brushing. You know, are you remembering deodorant? Like the, <laughs> the you know this, and um, some students might even be shaving. Uh, some students that won't be coming till later, but any of those um, self care skills, some domestic kinds of skills, have students started doing any chores and then there are you know certain community skills um, or even just exposure to being out in the community right does a student go grocery shopping with their family do they um, ever go to the mall with anybody you know sort of just what's the exposure to the community it's good to get a baseline on some of those skills um, pretty early because we know uh, for students with autism, adaptive functioning tends to be a really vulnerable area. Um, it often is lagging behind and so getting a, a sense of where you're at and, um, and making sure that you have enough time to learn some of those skills can be really important. But the, the other things that we focus on at the, at the younger ages are really digging in on what are this kid's strengths? You know, what are they interested in? Um, what are they passionate about right now? and what have been some areas of passion in the past and you know where can we build out social and potentially like pre-vocational activities from their areas of interest um, you know I think structured social activities not just going to a social skills group but you know being part of 
I don't um, like a Minecraft group, right? Or be or being part of an athletic activity. Um, sometimes a, a running club, you know, eventually a track team can be a great outlet. So really starting to figure out what the students' strengths and interests are and how to start to build out activities around that that are gonna help them be more independent and more of a community member. And then for for thinking about, I'm always thinking about employment. Um, our, our, well, our unemployment rates in adulthood are bad, right? Um, and we're, we're not heading into a period of time where the economy is going to be much easier. So I'm just always thinking about how do we get towards uh, being a paid, <laughs> being a paid employed <laughs> adult, you know, right. and for a 12 year old, some of that is just learning about careers. You know, does this student know what their parents do for work, what their aunts and uncles do for work? Um, you know, if there's, if there's by chance a job they're interested in, um, which sometimes there really is at that age, you know, like, Let's, let's take the opportunity to learn more about how somebody got to the job that they have, that they're interested in, right? So it's sort of really early career awareness, career development kinds of things. Um, 12, you know, 12 is a, on the younger side for students to be doing like paid work, but they could be doing chores for neighbor or, <laughs> or, you know, or sort of like counselor in training, employee in training kinds of things. Um, so there's a lot to start looking at at that age. And then there's certainly, um, I never want to lose sight of things like, you know, just how are they doing with academic skills? Is this a student that's on track with their MCAS? Um, you know, there can be a tendency um, to not really think through at those early ages, whether a student's going to be able to pass any state standard tests that exist, um, and, and sometimes a giving up a, a little bit too early on students. So um, in my role, I always want to be paying attention to, you know, even with a child that young, like, okay, are we keeping them on track academically? And, and will this kid be able to achieve a diploma at some point? Um, and, you know, executive functioning is just such a hard area that that's something else to take a look at and look for opportunities to build skills, especially if you can build some of those skills um, before high school. You know, students who, depending on um, if students in a public school or a private school and what their school district is like, um, sometimes executive functioning skills are a little bit of a prerequisite for getting into higher level academic classes as a high school student. And so if there's a way to shore up some of those while well a student's in middle school, um, it, it can really sort of set a, a student on a different trajectory um, for later on. So, so, you know, essentially I look at a lot of different areas um, I'm sort of always thinking about the same areas. I'm always thinking about, you know, career readiness for some sort of learning after high school and, and independent living skills. But how I'm how I'm looking at that is a little different at that age. Right. Um, and then what like, of course, now, you know, my next question, right? How do we, <laughs> we get into the little harder grades right? as we move into the high school, this 14, 15 right? Like those first couple years. Um, what is that? I, I'm guessing it's the same sort of lens, right? But what are we now looking at in that age group? So it's the same foundation. I think something that layers in and becomes a little bit more intense during high school are these uh, what we call self-determination skills. And those, I mean, honestly, we 
we should be looking at that all along, right? For, you know, for any child, self-determination, um, it's a big word, it's sort of a buzzword in transition. Um, and it breaks down into a lot of different skills. It's things like self-advocacy skills. Um, and to be a good self-advocate, you have to both be self-aware and know sort of what your resources are that you can be advocating for. Um, it's things like being able to set short and long-term goals for yourself and knowing how to sort of track your progress with your goals. Um, it's, it's basically being, you know, being able to make decisions um, for yourself with like as little help as is needed. It doesn't mean no help, right? But um, sort of plan, planning out your life with as much independence as you can. And um, I shouldn't say that I, it's not like I don't look at that in middle school, but I, I start to look at it through the lens of how a student participates in their own special education process. And, you know, how a student is participating in like planning and organizing their weekend activities, um, how, how much, you know, sort of how much they know about themselves and can describe their needs. Um, all of that is very much a focus when students are in high school um, because um, if when they transition to adulthood, you know, uh, students who are, have special education when they're younger, all of the resources are sort of um, established by their school and by their parents for them, right? <laughs> but then when you when you become an adult, um, that that whole system where people just accommodate you without your having to ask for accommodation that's that's not that's not real life, right? You know that doesn't happen in in a college environment. That doesn't happen in a work environment. So there has to be a progression of students understanding who they are, you know, understanding what they need, understanding how to tell their friends that, right, how to advocate for yourself just in everyday situations, but then understanding how to actually, you know, go through more formal processes of, you know, finding services that you might need, you know, like a, like using the writing center in college or finding, um, a, you know, making sure that you get any sorts of accommodations that you're entitled to across the different places that you interact in your adult life. So the self-determination skills become incredibly important as students progress through high school um, for me to see that those are developing. Yeah. And I, I, I really like that you broke down self-determination that way. I think I, I often hear people talk about, well, this drive, right? Like, does the student have drive or does the student know how to self-motivate? So I think we use those terms, um, but I, I like the way you've just, you've defined it a little bit better because it makes it much more concrete and tangible um, and actionable. Like we can observe um, those skills instead of just this generic, you know, the student doesn't have motivation. Right. Right? Well, and I think, you know, something like, like self-motivation, right? You know, how do you get motivated if you have a goal, but you have no idea how to break right. that down into smaller steps or where you start? Right. Right. Um, and I think there's certainly there, you know, there's lots of individuals where initiation is is incredibly hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. But initiation is impossible if you don't know what the first step is supposed to be. So um, I do think there's a lot of ways that you can work on uh, components of self-determination um, that can then result in somebody looking more self-motivated. But it's, you know, it's building a whole bunch of skills that that make you look that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I, I know, um, you know, one thing 
you mentioned uh, self-awareness is a big piece of this. And oftentimes, you know, and, and I've talked in other um, podcasts and in other interviews about uh, students sort of being really aware early on, as you said earlier, developmentally appropriate about who they are. I, I've heard a lot of stories about students not even knowing um, that they have a diagnosis or, you know, not knowing that they're on an IEP until we get to this time. And and I really feel it's such a disservice because I think kids need to know. And, you know, they kind of already know that they feel different or that, you know, they're, they're learning differently than their peers are learning. And there's other people coming into the room to help them that aren't, <laughs> that aren't helping others. Right. And it's sort of like they're living in, um, you know, they're sort of isolated from the information that other people around them have. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, gosh, you know, if you think about like younger ages, it's just so important to know that, right, like that you have certain strengths and challenges that are different than other people. And, you know, and that you're not supposed to be good at everything and that not every topic you're learning is supposed to be as easy as another topic. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I always do when I'm doing transition assessment with students is an interview. Um, and it's not uncommon for me to be the first person who's asked students, I mean, even 17-year-old students, um, like, what are you good at? Right. <laughs> and that's a really challenging question for many of the students that I work with. Um, and I think sometimes they might be able to come up with like one or two academic related responses, you know, like, okay, I'm good at math or um, I'm really good at history, uh, but not to be able to sort of build out from that, um, even understanding like why, like, you know, why are you good at certain academic subjects <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, um, and then I always ask students, you know, how, like, how would other people describe you and for some students they, they're actually much better at that right they haven't thought about how they describe themselves but they can think of you know words that other people use to, to describe them for other students it's the reverse you know they have no idea what other people would say about them but they have 10 things they think about themselves but I think it's just those basic like being able to describe what you're good at what's challenging for you but then as you mentioned you, you do have to understand that you have a diagnosis and that because you have a diagnosis and you know whatever symptoms or challenges you know come with that you're entitled to certain accommodations or um, you've been receiving certain accommodations um, and that these are some things that are helpful for you to be successful and that if you want to continue to be successful in settings that are even more challenging than the setting you're currently in, um, you're going to have to advocate for some of those things. And uh, yeah, it's very common for me to have students come in, especially if students have multiple diagnoses, they might be aware of one diagnosis, but not all of them, or um, there might be language being used um, that's descriptive of a challenge, right? Like I, I process information slowly, but they might not know sort of the medical label that goes with that. Um, and that's just uh, incredibly important. And I do think 
sometimes easier if it's done a little bit earlier and more matter of fact, um, as opposed to like a big reveal later, right? right. Um, <laughs> especially yeah. if, you know, because if we have things like media and social media, and, and you may have misperceptions about what the label means by the time you know that it's something that describes, you know, your profile. Um, so that that is incredibly important. Um, and one of the challenges I think right now for students who might be making a transition from uh, like from school, uh, whether it's a small private school or a public school um, to college or to a workplace is that we also have a habit of accommodating students well beyond what's written in that IEP. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it's sometimes it's it's actually accommodating that's happening for the whole high school and it makes things very confusing. You know, some some schools will just have a policy that any student who needs extra time on a test is allowed to have extra time on a test. Um, you know, when you get to college, you have to have testing that shows that you're entitled to take more time with your test and it has to be very specific as far as whether you get 50% or 100% um, and it can be a real problem if you were being given accommodations that you're not actually entitled to. Um, you know, I've had that happen before, you know, extra time on tests, sort of like sitting on an IEP for eight years and, and a student hadn't actually had any recent diagnostic testing that would indicate that they needed extra time. And then you run into challenges when they go to take the SAT or the ACT um, or transitioning into college. So there's, you know, it's, it's really important for, um, for everyone to be aware of, you know, exactly what the student's entitled to and to, to not be over accommodating, you know, to make sure that accommodations or services that aren't needed or aren't used um, get taken off of an IEP. And, and again, that the student knows what they use. <laughs> right. And I think that's, a, that's an important thing. I, I did want to touch on that, right? Because I think we, sometimes it's an exploratory process. As a child is younger, we are trying to test out different things. What strategies do work and what, you know, what do we push and pull? And, um, and also as a parent, you, you, sometimes you're not sure, like, how much do I pull back? And, you know, are, are they going to fall? And if they fall, well, we can come back. And, you know, it's kind of like this, um, uh, you know, it's like this balance scale, but so what, what would be some advice as far as, you know, recognizing that, um, okay, what can we take away and how do we plan for that? I mean, to me, that's the little T, which is for transition, right. which is right. How do we say, okay, we could do the big evaluation and say, okay, this, this student might need these 10 things. Um, but okay, they're only using, you know, six of them, or do they still need those other four? Or do we encourage them to use it? Maybe they, you know, they'd see more progress, or maybe they'd feel better about themselves, whatever that is. Um, yeah, how do you, how do you, you know, what's your advice around knowing that push and pull on that? Mm. I mean, it is, it is exactly that individualized as you're describing, and it is that challenging. I think um, one piece of advice is start thinking about it early. Um, you know, I think something that can be really hard is families may be working really hard to get certain accommodations or services um, <clears throat> that they know are going to enable their student to do better academically at, at the high school level. And then it's like, maybe you don't get the service till seventh grade, so you don't want to 
lose it in ninth grade, right? It can mm. be hard. It can be hard to let go. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, and that's that's the whole process of transition as a parent is that it's really hard, right? It's it's really hard to let go of accommodations or supports that you know are helping your right, like helping your kid get good grades or helping them deal with less stress during their day. Um, but the bottom line is you really have to think about um, what are the what are the skills the student's going to have to be able to do independently, you know, after high school um, and looking at some of those skills, you know, where is their opportunity for for fading um, or for reducing some accommodation? And then if there are, you know, if there are accommodations that the student's going to be able to have after high school, you don't have to pull those ones away. Um, but, um, you know, with transition, we're always sort of looking at like, what are our goals? And so what steps do we need to take right now um, to reduce some of the support that's happening? You know, something like a one-to-one aid is a support that absolutely has to be reduced, right? Um, there are very few scenarios <clears throat> where you can take another person with you to a college classroom um, to help with work or, and, and I mean, there are some scenarios where that can be done, but, it, but it's also just thinking about how helpful is that, you know, in the long term for that individual. So figuring out, I always think about, okay, if you have a one-to-one aid in the classroom, talking with the student and talking with the aid, getting both people's perspective on what is it that the aid is, is doing. Sometimes, sometimes it's just anxiety reduction. It's just, (laughs) you know, they're like, I just feel better when he's in the room because I know if I happen to need something and it's like, okay, well, what if, what if the aide was outside the classroom and you knew you could, you know, get up and take a restroom break and get sort of like get to your security, like, okay, what if the aide was in the counseling office? You know, could you make it there? Like sort of starting to move toward something that is a little bit more, um, I'm going to say normalized, uh, but it's more like naturalistic, right? Something that's closer to what would be available in any environment if you needed it, or what would be a reasonable accommodation in any environment. You know, when it comes to extra time on tests, unlimited extra time on test is not reasonable. You know, that's not something that's going to be available later in life. So can we, you know, can we break that down to 100%? Um, if it's... Um, you know, uh, sometimes it's something like a student um, getting to sit in the front of the classroom is an accommodation, right? And so, okay, well, could the student actually advocate for themselves and talk to the teacher, you know, about why they need that? Because that's uh, that might be part of what they would have to do later on, or they just have to learn to get to class early, <laughs> which is hard to do, you know, hard to do in a high school given the times changing between classes, but it's something that, you know, you could be working on the organizational skills so that students can arrive places early because that's probably what they're going to have to do later in life if they need a front row seat, right? Um, and, and making sure the student knows which of those accommodations are really helpful to them and why. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's, it's having a lot of conversations um, as a parent and with some of the school professionals who are providing support and with the student to know, okay, we've got this list of 47 accommodations. Is there anything on here that we're definitely not using? You know, and then which of these are are sort of more unrealistic in adulthood? Um, You know, having somebody chunk a whole bunch of information for you um, 
isn't something that can happen forever. <laughs> um, you, 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 there may be a service needed so that a student can learn to break down some information for themselves. Um, yeah, I think this, it's really important. You touched on uh, a few things here, but that letting go process, right? And, and the, the parent fighting so hard for certain things. Um, you know, I, I was one of those parents, uh, I guess you would imagine that. <laughs> um, but like it was, you know, I, my son was a junior in high school and we, we were very, it was a very dynamic IEP. We, you know, in general, we were always having conversations, we had a great uh, special ed director. And so we're having this conversation, we're at the annual meeting and we went through all of the different pieces and Ryan was very self-aware you know he was in there and he says you know finally they're like well here's your academic record how are you feeling about all of these different pieces and he's like yeah I'm I'm doing really well I'm having you know academic progress and he's and so we're like so they said um are we thinking that we need all of this in place? And I was like, oh, what? What's happening right now? <laughs> and I realized, so in that moment, I said to my son, like, do you do you want to keep with these things or are you willing to let it go? And he was like, and, and I'm like, you know, holding myself right. inside, like what's happening? <laughs> and he was like, wait, are you asking me, like, do I still want to be on an IEP? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's what we're all asking right now. And he was like, I think I can try to do it without it for senior year. Wow. Um, and it was like a big moment because he was he is a good advocate. He does. He is very self-aware. Um, but to let it go was like a huge piece of, you know, him owning who he was and what he knew he could do and how to ask for it and find those resources, all the things that you just mentioned. Um, is there always was, you know, anxiety around what are we doing? <laughs> but, you know, as a senior, when he was going to college after, yeah, that stuff's not there, you know, yeah. And he can advocate for the pieces that he needs and asks for them. Um, but there is no, right, there's no IEP that goes with you to college or to your employer, right? So... Right. There's, there's not. And I think um, it's funny because I have my sort of, you know, um, I have a, my personality always thinks of like what could go wrong or... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so and so when I think about relinquishing um rights to an IEP, one of the things that you are giving up is rights to transition services. Uh you know, so so some students in high school uh it, really the only way for them to develop executive functioning and self-advocacy skills that will support them in college is to trial college coursework as a high, as a high school student, right? And that's something that's an example of a transition service, although there are high school students, general ed high school students who do dual enrollment in college classes, right? So there, there's different ways to do this and it depends on whether you need specialized instruction to help learn those skills to be able to be a college student or whether um, you can get that, you know, in another way, right? Um, so I do think, um, yeah, you have to really look at, you know, does the student just need accommodations? Do they not even actually need accommodations um, beyond, you know, just sort of everyday, um, like something like getting an extended 
deadline on an assignment is something you could negotiate with a professor, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> even as exactly. a student without a disability. So, so it's thinking about like, do you need something that goes beyond um, what's typical? Um, and then, you know, the difference on the IEP is like, do you need some sort of special instruction or a service, you know, not just accommodation in the classroom, but special instruction or a service. And I think, um, if, if you're not needing those things, you might just need accommodations. Um, and there are plenty of students who don't actually need accommodations, right? They don't actually qualify for things like extra time or a note taker, things like that. Very much depends on the student's profile. So right. you're right, at is, some point you got to let go. Right, <laughs> and uh, it's so individual, individualized. And also so many, you know, it also depends on the school. I mean, my kids' high school was very small and everybody knew each other. And, you know, you had similar teachers, you know, you might have them in sophomore year and then have them again in senior year. So they they all know the students really well. And it's it's a different, more intimate setting than if you were in a you know graduating class of, you know, 500. This was right. a graduating class of like 70. So it's a big difference and they could take on that. But yeah, definitely you would want to know beyond uh, high school, you know, how would you be able to get the services that you need, um, you know, given the self-awareness given. So I'm, I'm not advocating for people to just give up their IEP. <laughs> I'm just saying that in my, in, you know, in my experience, that was a, a, a defining moment of, wow, Absolutely. I, I kind of have to let that go and let him take it on and, and do it now while we still have another year <laughs> in high school, you know, to see what this is like. Um, right. I, I do. I mean, I, I, it is a delicate balance, right. Of, of giving up some specialized instruction to build skills that are needed for the opportunity for the student to trial out their skills in a safe supported environment. Right. Uh, but I do think, yeah, the earlier that you can fade something, the better, because, you know, the student just has that much more practice using skills before they have to apply them in a completely new environment. Um, and so that's what we should always be striving for is, you know, when something, you know, when a skill looks like it's mastered, let's try it out in a couple of different settings. And then like, let's, let's fade the supports and sort of move on and keep building skills. Um, it's definitely a, a constant kind of a process. Yeah. And as we're talking about this, you know, uh, building skill and moving into this adulthood phase, you had mentioned earlier um, about like pre-employment experiences. And I actually interviewed um, an educator from Australia, but she does a, a she's in a high school setting and she had advocated uh, for creating um, sort of like a I'd say it's like a mentorship program, but definitely exposing students to different employment opportunities based on interests. She aligned with, you know, local businesses in the district so that, you know, students could go and actually see what it was like to be in those um, employment spaces even, just that. Uh, and I also have a, a friend uh, in New York who runs a, a, a school business partnership program, which basically is a similar kind of thing. It's exposing students early on in early high school um, to different types of career opportunities. And, you know, I feel like that's something that should be part of like intrinsic to curriculum. And <laughs> <laughs> it, sh it should be. And it's a, you know, I mean, that is a completely appropriate transition service. But I mean, it would be a pr 
completely appropriate career development kind of an expectation for for students, um, but it's really an appropriate transition service for students. You know, things like job shadowing, uh, like going and spending a couple of hours or a day in in some different career settings or informational interviews, you know, going and, and interviewing people about what they do for work, getting a tour and being able to interview someone about their job. Those are such critical um, vocational development kinds of experiences. And they're particularly important for a lot of students with autism because, um, you know, the funny thing about like career interest testing, right? You bring students in and you, you read them, whatever, 60 items, 180 items, 291 items. I have a lot of different <laughs> batteries. You know, I mean, those are, those are literal numbers of three different inventories I use, right? And all these inventories, you know, describe something like, painting a wall or laying brick or, you know, developing a, developing a new medicine, right? And the student has to say on a Likert scale, either, you know, no, maybe, or yes, I would like that. Or sometimes it's a five-point Likert scale. <laughs> um, but, but, but for students who are like more visual learners or tangible or, you know, like really cannot picture themselves doing whatever the activity is that that item mentions, those tests are often really inconclusive. <laughs> you, know, you have uh, the most common patterns, um, and again, this is generalizing, but the most common patterns for kids in the spectrum is either like tons of no or tons of I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, occasionally I get the kid who likes everything, but, uh, you know, and there are students who've had more career exploration or uh, maybe, you know, just are more self-aware, better perspective taker, you know, who do well with those kinds of tests. But for a lot of students, career interest inventories are not super useful because the way that they're going to figure out what kind of employment is a good fit for themselves is trial and error. Um, and, or it's at least much more experiential learning than just sitting down and answering 60 questions where you have to picture yourself doing different activities. Um, you know, it's great because we do have some, some really sophisticated video-based um, exploration kinds of activities on the internet these days. Um, and so you can do a lot of job exploration that's similar to job shadowing, um, you know, just from the comfort of home. Um, but yes, getting out and, and spending time in different work settings is a, a really important opportunity. I mean, I think that's great that you've been able to have um, some guests, you know, come and talk more about those kinds of partnerships because those are huge. Um, you know, depending on where a listener is in the country or in the world, you know, they may have more of those opportunities in their communities. Um, in the Boston area, uh, we have less of that as a general rule, and some of it is because we tend to be really focused on students getting into college and less focused on figuring out exactly what employment is going to be a good fit for them. Um, and that's that's why I said, like, I'm very passionate about employment and trying to shift some of that at a much younger age, you know, doing work, um, you know, work for money and work for someone else's expectations, not just your parents or not just your teachers, um, can be just so critical in terms of, of building some skills. We do have, um, and this is not just in Massachusetts, this is across the United States, um, although we, the label is different, um, but there are these pre-employment transition services um, that happen now. <laughs> 
in Massachusetts, um, which are actually run through Mass Rehab Commission, which provides the vocational services for adults in the state. Um, but they have to use a certain proportion of their budget to fund pre-employment transition services. And there's sort of um, different buckets of pre-vocational skill development that are part of this. And um, some of the agencies that provide the, the pre-ETS is, is um, sort of the short name for it, uh, do do things like setting up job shadows for students. I've had you know students who got three or four job shadows set up through agencies or um, internships or you know more hands-on uh, vocational exploration if they have settings to do that. So um, there are yeah, there are some opportunities to access that if students are connected with that service. And really anybody 14 and up um, who has a disability can be, you know, taking part in pre-ETS. You don't have to be referred by your school district. Um, so that's something any parent could look into. And there are, there are comparable uh, pre-vocational services in all the states. Oh, cool. Well, that's really good. Yeah. So, so as we can, yeah, I mean, as we're looking, but as we're thinking about that, so what would that... Um, Right. If we're looking at assessing and, and as you said, I know not just Massachusetts, but Northeast in particular, we're very um, college focused. <laughs> um, but what you know, when we're looking at that as, a, a, you know, I guess in the teen years um, and we're saying, well, how do we assess if like what does my kid want to do? And, you know, if, if all their peers are saying, well, we're just going to go, you know, we're going to go to college and that's what we do. That's the next step. Um, how do you uh, start having that exploration around what are we going to, right? Like, what are we going to do right. after high school? <laughs> I mean, I think for a lot of students, the answer is that they are going to go to college, you know, and, and what's tricky is, you know, with transition planning and with, with my working with students and trying to be as self-determined as possible with the student, right? Allowing a student's goals to sort of drive the process of where we're heading. A lot of students do really want to go to college and, College is an experience that many of their peers are going to have. It's a great social opportunity, right? Most of us built networks in college, mm -hmm. which then have led to employment opportunities later and even continued employment opportunities, right, later in life. So it, it um, for many students, that is where they're headed and it's assessing whether they're going to really be ready by the time they finish 12th grade, um, whether they might benefit from, you know, a year in between where they're sort of either like pre-college getting ready to be a college student, you know, taking a couple of classes, sort of more of a slow start model. Uh, for some students, it's taking a year to actually try some more employment out and, and get better at some more independent skills kinds of things. But um, for a lot of students, it, um, I'm not necessarily making the choice between like, is it college or is it not college? It's more, they definitely want to go to college at some point. And so we're looking at readiness and what skills need to be built. And then if there are experiences that are a good step to have in between. And, you know, if college is going to play into their likely adult employment outcome, right? So um, I think, you know, for some students where college might, might might not make quite as much sense, there's students who might be just like super technically adept, right? Or really interested in auto mechanics or, mm -hmm. <laughs> you right. know, they're sort of interested in something hands-on where the college degree is actually going 
you know, might take them away from yeah. <laughs> some of their earning potential because they're going to spend f- spend four years and a whole bunch of money on something that isn't going to actually sort of escalate their employment value later, right? Um, for the students who were looking at, you know, college, it's like, I mean, you do need to look at academically, do, like, do they have some of those academic foundational skills? Like, um, you know, are they, are they up to like an eighth grade, you know, reading and writing levels? Have they hit some of those academic skills? What's going on with executive functioning? Do they have test taking and note taking strategies and things like that? Um, and then as we talked about a lot, this, the self-determination skills to be able to be on a college campus. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of going and doing college visits or college tours with students. Um, not, not as much right now because there's so few students on the campuses. <laughs> but you can do virtual, I mean, you can do virtual college tours right now, which is really interesting. And just, you know, just even like how a student makes meaning of that activity or what they notice from the environment, you know, going and eating in a college cafeteria with a student is a really interesting experience, right? Um, and so, you know, just starting to help the student to picture themselves in that setting, figure out like, uh, why is it that they wanna go there? And um, are, there, are there some career interests and some potential college majors that would make sense for that student? Um, you know, those are some of the things that we tend to look at. There is, um, Landmark College put out, it's a little harder to find because I don't think it's on their website anymore, but there's like Landmark College's A Guide to College Readiness, which is just 25 items that focus mostly on academic and self-determination and some motivation kinds of questions. Like that's a great self-evaluation for students to take or, (laughs) you know, or for parents to look at. And I think there's some good items in there that really give you a sense of skills that would be expected in a traditional college environment. Um, And then, you know, there may be, um, there's some, I, I look at other life skills kinds of things like Casey Life Skills is an online assessment. Um, or just uh, there's an adol- adolescent autonomy checklist. Like these are things you, that are really easily Googleable. <laughs> right, right. Um, that sort of gives students a sense of like, oh, here's some things. Like, yeah, I would need to know how to get money from an ATM if I were a college student, right? Or I might need to know how to write a check. <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> even though, right? Like, it's not like we ever write. Well, like, but you write a check like once every two months, right? But you still have to know how to do it. Now, some students, some students, you just you just know, and through talking with them, it's like, oh, I would YouTube, I, I would just look it up on a YouTube video. And, <laughs> that's, and that's, right. a, that's a great self-help strategy, right? That wasn't a thing when I was, no. <laughs> but, um, but that's a great self-help strategy. And if a student knows that that's a strategy that works for them and they're able to follow videos correctly, then like, that kid's golden, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can YouTube anything. <laughs> right, right. And some people, they, they can, you know, that is a good self-help tool for them. Some, some students, it's not. They need something more explicit. So I think, you know, it's, it's figuring out whether there's a certain set of skills there and some of those self-help strategies that are going to be needed. Um, you know, and for other students, it's definitely looking into a slower start method. You know, for some students, learning to master how college academics are organized, which is really different than how high school academics are organized. There is much more 
self-directed learning. There, are, you know, is much more logistical <laughs> organization than you've ever had to do. Um, you know, for some students, just figuring out how to manage those academic pieces without having to move away from home, also do my laundry, navigate a whole new social group, have a roommate. You know, sometimes a two-step kind of approach is better um, for students. For other students. Um, they want to tackle all of those life skills first and so they might actually go to you know a gap year program like uh, like dynamy is a program that's in worcester where students can go and have two or three internships you know live for it's it's you know a relatively inexpensive program to go live in an apartment for uh, two thirds of the year and have three very high quality internships. And so for some students, they go learn all those life skills and learn how to navigate, you know, a community like Worcester on their own before they head off to college. It's just, um, there is a little bit of an individualized nature to it. Um, and there's, uh, you know, a lot to be sort of looking at and thinking about uh, for each student. But I, I do always think about, um, what are sort of some realistic employment outcomes for this student, some of which the student might know for themselves. Sometimes it's, I, you know, I love interviewing like teachers and family members to be like, <laughs> do you ever picture this kid in a job? If so, you know, what would that be? Right. Um, and trying to sort of like figure out some potential outcomes. You're never going to, I mean, I, I never do an evaluation where I say, okay, we're going to do this testing and we're going to know exactly what job you're going to have <laughs> 10 years from now. I mean, that is just, that's not what the evaluations do, but we can get to, we can get to, you know, three or four career clusters that would be really good for you to explore over time, you know, and, it, and, and yes, going to college is going to make sense for all of these. And, you know, for some students, you know, okay, let's, let's pick a liberal arts college that has you know, the access of these three or four majors that might be good fits for you. And, you know, you're going to try some different classes and just like many of us did um, and figure out uh, a little bit more about where you're going to specialize. And then we're going to continue the career planning process um, to make sure that you're working over summers and you're, you're coming out as somebody who's going to be employable on the other side. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really excellent point because I do, um, you know, often, think about, uh, I know I, my undergraduate is not related, uh, really to anything that I'm doing, you know, 30 years later. So I'm like, Oh, I think I know a lot of people like that actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you, you can, you can only think about, uh, all right, well, I, I'm going to go down this path because it's something that's interesting or it makes sense for me right now. And it might lead you somewhere else. Right. It might. Yeah. I, I think what's challenging though, is that uh, our undergraduate experiences were less of a financial investment ah, than true. college. <laughs> no, right. And no. And so, so when you, I think you mentioned before, like uh, we tend to be really realistic at NASCA and I, you know, like I probably, I'm just uh, like very into reality and, <laughs> you know, sort of, and so I do think really thinking about how much, you know, how much money is there to invest in college over whatever my child's entire lifetime um, and so if we start with the most expensive school but we're not sure that this is really going to be a major that um, will be supportive for the student in the long term career wise or it's too much of a reach in terms of where the student currently is with their abilities um, you know we could end up 
really on a, a, on a tough path. You know, I've, I've seen that where students start at the most challenging school that doesn't work, then they go to the, the next most challenging school, you know, and they're three or four schools later and um, have invested a lot of money um, and maybe still haven't even figured out uh, whether they need the college degree. So, you know, I, I am a fan of thinking realistically about how much, how much money is there um, does it just make more sense to start with community college, which is a great soft start for a lot of people. And there are some community colleges that have residences, um, depending on what state you're in, you know, if you want to have that away from home experience, there are some great state schools. Um, so sometimes it's starting with a more affordable school or uh, for students who might not be able to manage like a full college course load, um, you know, to, to not be able to take the five or six classes at one time, but, um, but could, <laughs> but could manage three or four and then they could take, you know, they could make up summer classes at a state school or at a community college and sort of put together the whole college degree over time. Um, it's just thinking about, um, how to do it in a way where you're not going to really uh, be in debt forever. Right. Right. Um, yeah, no. And that's definitely reality. And I think the, you're bringing up a good point about this creativity <laughs> piece <laughs> and thinking a little outside of the box of, of, you know, how do we make it work for this particular student? And I think that's great because I, I think we can all tend to get caught up in the linear path, which, you know, for our kids, you know, I know that that's, not is oftentimes not the case so well and it's not just for our kids I mean I, I we we have this magical picture that college is a four-year process right I mean, we even <laughs> call them four-year colleges but that's not that's not reality like colleges don't even tend to report their four-year graduation rates you're always looking at like five or six-year graduation rates because the reality is a lot of people need more than four years to complete college you know whether it's um taking time off um um, for, for gap year internship type experiences. Um, there's a, a very good percentage of students, you know, about a third who will tend to either drop out for a while or transfer um, in their first year of college, right? Um, colleges are great at marketing. We're not great consumers, <laughs> right? We're, there's a good percentage of people who are purchasing the wrong college initially. Um, and so I think that that's where this transition planning and, you know, doing a lot of assessment, not fancy expensive assessment, but just self-evaluation kinds of processes. You know, I use a lot of informal transition assessment with students in sessions or, you know, have give parents you know, resources that they can just use at home to try to start discussions. Um, yeah. And at, you, you actually were great at, I know during my process, you had given a talk and I was like, oh, let me write down all of this, <laughs> all of these like, you know, free or relatively inexpensive types of resources. And I actually just found some of them that, you know, I was cleaning up a closet as we many people did during this time. But I found the, the trans, I forget which one it was, but it's just like maybe 30 questions or something. But it was like, wow, these are really good questions. Like, and that you can revisit this. Like, um, so where can people find some more of these? Like, um, and I think it's a really good way to kind of wrap up this conversation is to find 
um, you know, really simple, uh, accessible and affordable transition, you know, resources. Yeah, well, I think the, um, I mean, the ones that I've mentioned already, like Landmark's um, Guide to College Readiness is a good one to, to Google. And again, that's like 25 questions. And they're, they're good questions that really pertain a lot to academic readiness and a little bit motivational readiness for college, you know, for, for the life skills kinds of things. I do love um, Casey Life Skills, which is just an online free assessment um, that a student can do. Yes, C-A-S-E-Y, um, Life Skills. Um, there's one called the Adolescent Autonomy Checklist. Um, that again, they're all sort of Googleable free things. We could probably put some links um, for anybody who's listening for this. And then there, um, another good one that comes out of Washington State is called the Life Skills Inventory. Um, and it's intended for like students, you know, 16 or 17 and up um, to see if students are competent with some different life skills. And, you know, with any of those, you, you're just figuring out I think a lot of times you just have those aha moments right. <laughs> of, okay, we're, we're taking a life skills inventory and it, it has an item in here that I, I didn't even think about, you know, whether um, the student knows how to do or not. And I'm like, oh, we should probably work on that. That's going to be important. <laughs> so I think it's just, you know, they're just little checklists that you can do and then you can think about, okay, here, here, like with the Casey life skills, what I love to do is a uh, student takes the inventory and then we go through the items that they think they mostly can't do or sort of can't do. And I say, okay, like, which of these do you think are actually important? You know, <laughs> you know right? Like making your bed is not on that inventory, but that's always a great item of like, some people just don't make their bed in adult life. And if the right. student's not going to make their bed in adult life, let's not spend a ton of time working <laughs> on that. <laughs> you know, like washing and changing sheets. Yes. But yeah. <laughs> um, so, or, or like, cook, you know, cooking, right? Like cooking a, a five course meal, not that important being able to, you know, understand sort of basic nutritional balance and cook at least breakfast, lunch, and dinner for yourself, important, right? Like just sort of setting the, the, the bar where it needs to be realistically, um, I think is important. There's also, um, I'm sure you're familiar with this resource. There's a, a book um, by Lori Wolf and Jane Therfeld Brown um, and Ruth Bork, uh, the, the Students with Asperger's Syndrome, A Guide for College Personnel. And it's funny because I like the guide for college personnel almost a little better than I like the one for parents, um, <laughs> even for parents. Um, but they have a couple of informal assessments in the back of this book that are like fabulous and that I use with almost every student I'm evaluating, even students who aren't on the spectrum in terms of there's a my areas of difficulty checklist. Um, and then there's a, another like identifying my academic strengths and weaknesses checklist. And um, I don't know exactly what that book costs on Amazon, but it can't be I mean, I it's think definitely it's like 25 yeah, or something. That yeah, is no. worth it for those yep. two checklists. <laughs> yeah. You know, for those two checklists, that is worth it. Um, because I think um, it's, it's good because it helps a student to think about just different areas they're going to be expected to be responsible for. 
um, if they're going to attend college and to think about, oh yeah, I would need help with that or I wouldn't. And it, once you get a student to the point of where they know they're going to need help with some things, then you know they may realize that they might actually want to use disability support services and want to have some accommodations and, and that can be really helpful because there are a good proportion of students who um, finish high school still on IEPs but then don't enroll with disability support services or student accessibility services in college, right? And so there's a, a really important self-awareness piece um, that has to happen as part of this process. Uh, there was one more resource that I was thinking of, but that I've forgotten as far as the college readiness piece. Um, well, I think also as you're thinking, these, you know, these questionnaires even ask a lot of just independent living type of questions. Um, so they're really good at not just assessing for college readiness, but for independent living readiness. Um, so you can kind of like intertwine, <laughs> intertwine a lot of these things depending on, um, you know, where your student or child is at and be able to pull you know, pull the pieces and, and if nothing else, just looking at it, like you said, and saying, oh, wow, I hadn't considered that, that one. <laughs> I don't know if they know how to open a bank account, or I don't know if they know how to use an ATM machine. That's something I didn't think of. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And there are, I mean, every state has, you know, like some sort of career um, like mass hire, you know, sort of a, a career um, support for adults. Um, and sometimes there are great resources on there. Um, in Massachusetts, there's a website that's Mass Career Information System, masscis.org. And that website, you anyone can sign in for free if you're a resident in Massachusetts. And um, you just put in a state and a zip code, which means also if you weren't potentially from Massachusetts, but you knew it. <laughs> No, I love to share that kind of you know, tip and, and tricks. And it's awesome because that website has career interest assessments that students can take. I mean, I, I love these websites that link your interests to different jobs, to different college majors that you need for those jobs, to different schools that actually have those college majors. I mean, all of this stuff is sort of linked up for students on um, the Mass Career Information System site. And there's videos of the jobs. You know, like uh, if I think I want to be, I don't know, a dentist, but then maybe there will be links to videos that are similar but different, right? Um, maybe I want to be a dental assistant. Maybe actually I like animals better, so I might want to be a vet tech. You know, <laughs> like, like it, it does some of that linking for you. And any students who've taken any career interest tests, um, whether they took them at school, uh, because a lot of high schools use these, a lot of guidance departments use career interest tests. Um, you can go to the Mass Career Information System and you can you can connect up results you got on career interest tests you took elsewhere with resources on that site, right? So I could go and say, oh, I did the ONET interest inventory for free over on the ONET online website, but now I want to do more career exploration that has videos because that works better for my brain and I can do that over here on this website. And so like there are some great um, websites to be able to navigate, but that's definitely one of my favorite um. Oh, cool. So what I'll do is I'll take all of these links and I will put them in the description for this um, for this podcast and then people can access them and play with them and find out some more information. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) This is such a silly, unimportant afterthought, but I was just going to say now that colleges are offering so many um, resources online, I have had a lot of students say that they actually enjoy doing some of these virtual tours of colleges um, better than in-person tours because they feel like they can ask questions a little more than when they're touring with their parents. Um, (laughs) Oh, wow. No, that's great. Just a (laughs) random tidbit, but just thinking about like online activities that students can be doing right now. I think like there's a lot and, and some kids will hate it, but um, for, other <laughs> students, for other students, it's a, it's a like very empowering to be able to do some of this stuff on their own. Yeah. And I think that's, what's great about this stuff. I mean, you know, we, we could have uh, most of my audience is educators and parents, but we do have some adults uh, listening in as well. And these resources can be great to just sit on your own and just click away and kind of see what's available and out there and have you um, not feel pressured when you're in a more formal setting, I think, and, or with, you know, parents or someone who's trying to kind of push you along. Sometimes you just need to kind of do some things on your own and take that space. Yeah. Yeah. So Kelly, this as usual, I know you have so much information and this is so interesting. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, if anyone has questions, uh, I will have all of your um, contact information and Nesca's contact information in uh, the description as well. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Ilya. This is uh, really nice to be able to talk with you today. Same. Thank you so much. And um, maybe again in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Ilya Walsh. And if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. Also, if you join our email list at thespectrumstrategy.com, You can get a code to attend one of my online courses for free. See you next time.